I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The standoff in Toulouse, France, came to a violent end this morning. Later in the day, France's interior minister described what happened. At 10 h 30 the grenades At 10.30, hand grenades were thrown into the apartment. There was no reaction from within. Then the officers took the decision to go in. They entered through the door and windows. When we started searching the bathroom with video equipment, the killer stormed out, shooting wildly. And in the end, Mohamed Mehrad jumped out of the window, holding the gun while still shooting. He was found dead on the ground. He was dead on the ground with a gunshot wound to his head. Three policemen were wounded in this morning's firefight. Mohamed Marah was wanted for the killing of three French paratroopers, a rabbi, and three Jewish children in three separate shootings since March 11th. All were in and around the city of Toulouse. During a 32-hour siege, the gunman reportedly boasted of the killings to police, and he said he hoped to bring France to its knees. Marah is said to have been inspired by al-Qaeda, and he'd purportedly been to Afghanistan for training. French investigators say they're still looking into the possibility that Marah had accomplices. Christopher Dickey is Paris bureau chief and Middle East editor for Newsweek and for the Daily Beast. He says it's not yet clear whether Marah acted alone. The police are telling the story, and his former lawyer is telling the story, that he was just a run-of-the-mill hooligan, a young kid who was in all kinds of trouble. I think he was taken before the juvenile court 15 times. The last time, as recently as February, when he was caught driving a motor scooter without a license. And over time, he supposedly indoctrinated himself uh, from the Internet and using CD-ROMs probably and DVDs and other sources uh, to build up his anger uh, about the oppression of Muslims, uh, whether in the Palestinian territories or in Iraq or in Afghanistan and Pakistan. All of that is pretty standard for what they call sort of self-radicalizing jihadis. The problem with his story is that his brother, his older brother, was implicated in a network uh, that was sending people from Europe to Iraq to fight in the jihad against the Americans around 2007. And there are all these connections that his family has that suggest that he may have been more than just a lone self-radicalizing type. And then, of course, there are his travels. He went to Afghanistan in 2010, and he went back to Afghanistan and Pakistan in 2011. Now, there again, the, the French authorities are saying, well, you know, he wasn't really important, and he was just doing this on his own. But that seems uh, fairly doubtful. The real question is, why didn't they notice him? The second time he went, supposedly he had a visa, and he was going to find a wife. But it's not exactly normal for uh, young Frenchmen of Algerian descent to go looking for their wives in Afghanistan or Pakistan. What else do you know about this young man that you think is especially pertinent? I think what's striking about him is how cool and disciplined he was. This is a guy who was supposedly a juvenile delinquent. And yet when it came to his murder spree, it was very well planned. The targets were very carefully chosen. The way it was carried out, first killing uh, soldiers, uh, then killing people at the Jewish school, including three children, shot at point-blank range uh, with a gun right up against them. You know, that takes a level of sort of horrifying cool to carry out. People are screaming, they're running, and you're just shooting. I mean, he was probably a psychopath, we could say, but he was not 
acting like a man out of control. He was acting like a man very much in control, and I think that's quite frightening. If we're looking then to determine what kind of a threat he was, how do we dissect whether or not he could have been a jihadi in the way that we think of of possible terrorists and those who could do great destruction, or the others who you say are more kind of self-proclaimed jihadis and maybe dilettantes, because all jihadis are not created equal. Well, no, that's right. And what we've seen over the years is that there used to be a fairly clear division between what's called al-Qaeda core, which we identify with Ayman Zawahri now or Osama bin Laden before. And that was an organization that was committed to carrying out truly apocalyptic terrorist attacks, 9-11 being the most obvious. Then you had another other groups, now al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in North Africa, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, and still still others that identify with the ideology uh, of, uh, of al-Qaeda, if you will, but run more or less independently. The problem is that the ideas put forth by these people can be picked up by anyone. And if there are still training facilities here and there, and it seems that uh, this, the man in Toulouse may have gone to one of those training facilities last year uh, in Pakistan, in Waziristan, then people can learn how to shoot. In some cases, they can learn how to make bombs. And then they may have a very low profile or no profile when they go back to their home country. Let's look at the bigger picture then. How appropriate and uh, how justifiable is it for France's president, Nicolas Sarkozy, to do what he especially is doing today? Let's look at the quote right now that he issued today. He said, from now on, any person who habitually consults websites that advocate terrorism or that call for hatred and violence will be criminally punished. This was in a, a televised address he gave after this suspect was Well, that is almost certainly that is almost certainly self-defeating from an intelligence point of view. Those websites are pretty easy to monitor. They are one of the best windows that intelligence organizations have into uh, jihadi organizations and particularly into groups sort of loosely affiliated groups that include self-radicalizing jihadis. You want those sites to stay open, ironically. I mean, I was just talking to a very senior intelligence official who was saying, you know, Facebook is the best tool we've got fighting against these, especially these self-radicalized types. But isn't isn't Facebook one of the best tools that the radicalized types have as well? It's a toss-up, I suppose. But if you cut them off from this kind of outlet, they probably will find others. But what will happen is that the intelligence services will not be able to find them. <laughs> so it is a kind of a self-defeating uh, uh, policy. So how would you gauge then the, the terrorist threat in France now? Yeah, I mean, I think putting it simply, the threat that's posed is that it's much harder to identify specific organizations that are promoting jihadist terrorism and carrying it out. But the spread of random, what seem to be almost random acts of jihadist terrorism is likely to increase. If you are a wannabe jihadist or terrorist, when you see that one guy using a 45 automatic can hold the world's attention for three days, you say, hmm, I could do that too. And that's the kind of thing that scares the hell out of law enforcement. Christopher Dickey, Paris Bureau Chief and Middle East Editor for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. Thank you. Sure.